One of the things that the Resilience Think Tank is focused on is helping our colleagues expand their knowledge into disciplines that are associated with resilience. Cyber is one of those disciplines, and who better to learn from than a world-class CISO? Hello everyone and welcome to episode 84 as the Resilience Think Tank presents the Resilient Journey podcast. I'm your host Mark Hoffman and today I'm joined by Chief Information Security Officer Greg Rogers. In this week's episode, I ask Greg questions that my clients are always asking me. Does paying ransom make you more likely to be a target in the future? How often do decryption keys actually work? And when it comes to the role of CISO, is that a technical position or a leadership role? And Greg explains exactly what keeps him up at night. The Resilient Journey podcast is a Resilience Think Tank production. Greg, welcome to the podcast. Really excited to have you here, man. So let's start by having you introduce yourself to the audience. Sure. Thanks for having me, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here today. So my name is Greg Rogers. I'm the CISO for Legal and General America. Uh, we're a life insurance company based out of Frederick, Maryland. Uh, we're, a, we're a wholly owned subsidiary of Legal and General Group, which is a real large financial services firm based in the UK. Prior to being a CISO, which is going on close to six years now, I spent about 15 years in the DOD uh, doing all sorts of things, uh, security engineering, architecture, testing, um, I, I did a lot of cyber risk assessments across the, the federal government. And then I'll also, you know, go into sysadmin development, network engineering, all, all kinds of those things. Done a lot, not an expert in, in really any of them. So very, very general background. Well, I think you're being modest. Now, for those uh, listening outside the U.S., DOD is Department of Defense. So there's a lot of uh, highly critical activity going on there, and, and we appreciate what you did there. What I wanted to do is I feel like we're in a really unique situation here where I have a chance to ask a world-class CISO some questions that I've always wanted to ask. And these are questions that clients always ask me, and I do my best to, to answer. But I got the guy in the chair right now, so I'm going to ask the questions. All right. So the first one that I want to ask you, Greg, is when it comes to the CISO role, Chief Information Security Officer, do you see that as a senior executive position or is it a technical position? Of course, I think it really depends on the organization, but but really... Um... I see it as as a leadership position, whether it's you know the top level of executive leadership or, or maybe one down. That, that depends on how your organization structures things. Um, you know, I don't necessarily believe that that you as the CISO need a seat at, at the board table. You know, you, you don't necessarily need to be on the board. Um, they're really driving the business, I think, much more than than the CISO does. Uh, but you need to enable that, and you need to be an advisor to all of those people. So, for example, I report to our chief risk officer. She's on the executive leadership team. She reports to the CEO. So I'm one level removed. But for us, for me, for my company, it, it works well. Uh, that also means I sit outside of IT, which, again, it depends on the organization, but I think is a benefit. Um, you know, so be, being a peer to the IT division uh, can really help. And, and again, I'm there to support them and, and help them. 
So it really is a leadership role. It really is a, you know, top level leadership role. I think to be really successful, you should have some technical background. Uh, you need to know what people are saying when you get into a room, if you're in the room with engineers or developers, uh, being able to have a smart conversation with them is, is really important. And also, you know, a lot of situations you get into with leadership or the board, you're looked at the technical as the technical expert. So they expect you to be able to describe things to them in, you know, layman's terms about technical topics, um, but also be able to see what the technical folks are doing and, you know, understand that in such a way that you can say, hey, this is a problem. This is a risk. It's a unique uh, blend of skill sets. You have to be able to translate, don't you, between technical jargon and business uh, impact and be able to talk to the to the executives. But you also need to build those relationships with the IT folks. And one of the things you're also doing is the cyber risk assessments. And I know you have a strong background in that. Talk about what's involved in doing a cyber risk assessment and then what you might do with you know, the top risks that might come out of that. Sure, sure. So, you know, how I do it now and how I did it in the past have, have varied greatly. Um, you know, while I was in the DOD, I spent a number of years doing cyber risk assessments. Our focus was always on the mission as opposed to the system specifically. Uh, but it was very technical. We had a 125-page methodology. It was based on NIST 830 guide for doing risk assessments, but it was very technical. Um, each each finding or you know risk vulnerability security weakness had like a dozen inputs. Uh, it was very you know quantitative, um, but we had very specific information we could use, and we were doing this for extremely critical systems. Now what I've done is in the government in the commercial space. I've really tried to simplify that. You know, we basically have two inputs that we look at, you know, or that we're scoring is, is likelihood and uh, impact. I feel the impact is much more important because likelihood is so difficult to nail down. Mm -hmm. um, there's not a lot of good information to use to score likelihoods and probabilities. Uh, it's, it's a lot of just either your experience or, you know, the opinion of the industry. So I really try to focus on the impact um, and I try to get them down to, you know, a, a red, yellow, green type of, of scoring. Um, the actual numbers are not super important. I'm, I'm more focused on, you know, being able to prioritize the greatest risks and, and, and focus on those for remediation quickly. And then, you know, the medium and low risks we can, take some more time and we can, you know, be a little more free with how we, how we remediate those. But it's really about prioritizing, you know, identifying the things that have the greatest impact on your organization that are likely to happen um, without getting too into, it's a 10%, it's a 20%, it's a 70% likelihood. Um, just, you know, we think this is something that we need to worry about and, and it has a great impact. So we'll focus on that. You and I were talking but, yeah, as we were planning the the episode, and we talked about how a lot of organizations seem to be moving away from that quibbling over whether this is a likelihood of three or a four, and it might change the score from a 12 to a 16 or, or whatever, and, and how little value there is in that, as opposed to saying, okay, yes, we agree that this is a big risk. 
And then in your role as CISO, you would establish a strategy for mitigating the risk and then maybe hand it over to the technical folks, right, to, to implement? Yeah, yeah. I, I work very closely with them in doing the risk assessment. Um, one of the things is is that team has gotten better at understanding risk as opposed to just what I would say black and white security. Uh, you know, so so they've grown themselves. So we'll do the risk assessment and then we work together to identify, you know, what the mitigations will be. We'll work together to prioritize those. Uh, and then, yeah, the team will run with that and and take care of it. And if I need to consult or, or provide any guidance, I will. Otherwise, you know, we have some really, really good engineers in the organization um, that, that I trust to, to really do the right thing. You know, and I, I know when they've implemented something, once they're happy, I have a hard time finding fault with what they've done. Nice. One of the things that organizations are doing to try to mitigate risk uh, is that they're moving away from on-prem solutions to cloud solutions, maybe SaaS solutions. And so for me, what I meant by that was cloud might mean they might use an AWS co-location kind of a thing and and just move their stuff there. In other cases, they might move uh, to a vendor to get the software as a solution uh, implemented. The common thought is, and I need you to tell me if this is true or if it's a misconception, is that once I move my systems to the cloud, my security worries are over. Hmm. <laughs> tell me what you feel about that. Yeah, I mean, that's a total misconception. Um I think it depends on what you're doing. You have more control in like an AWS or Azure environment uh, that you you can do than maybe a SaaS platform. You really don't have a lot of visibility into most of the third-party SaaS platforms. You might be able to turn on, you know, MFA and and connect it with maybe your Active Directory for single sign-on, and you know that can turn access on and off. Um, but you really don't know what's going on under the covers there. You don't know what the encryption is like. You don't even know what what you know the software vulnerabilities are under there. So there's a lot of trust that goes into that. You know, obviously you can you can do things with security questionnaires and look at their SOC reports and maybe they're ISO certified. But you know, a lot of that is just a, a paper audit. So you know, how much can you trust that? I've seen a lot of SOC reports in my, my time. And one thing I find that happens quite a bit is you'll be looking at it. So oh, great, no exceptions. Everything's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, it's scoped out the one application I'm using, or it scoped out, you know, part of their on-prem, uh, you know, infrastructure where they're doing their development, you know? So you have to really look at something like a SOC report to see what's scoped into it because, it's very easy to scope pieces out and, and it looks great. Um, questionnaire is the same way. You know, you, you can you can look to see how they answer it. It can give you an, an idea as to what they're doing. You can ask for policies, um, you know, and, and you can get an understanding of maybe their maturity through the way they answer questions and, and how well they answer them. Um, you know, I've had organizations that just, they don't understand what we're asking. That's a red flag. You know, if they can't, if they can't adequately, you know, answer the questions, or if you get a lot of contradictory answers, um, again, there's a red flag and they didn't understand it. So if they don't understand that, how well do they understand security? Yeah, so I like SAS, that. SAS is definitely one of those areas where there's, there's a lot of blind faith. Um, hmm. 
The other side is now getting into AWS and Azure type environments where you have a lot more control. You know, a few years ago when we were looking at making a transition, I, I did some research and, and I looked, you know, back a couple of years at basically every headline I could find on a on a cloud breach. And, you know, I would say probably 95% of them were the fault of a misconfiguration uh, on, on the client. You know, it was the customer's fault for, you know, introducing a, a vulnerability. Um, that's not to say you still don't have the same concerns over what's underneath that cover. Generally, those companies are, are very concerned about the security of those. So much rides on them. They have so much invested in it. Um, you know, and, and even the federal government with FedRAMP and all has, has really done a, a lot of investing. So mm -hmm. I think generally you can trust it more um, you know, but you really should have something in place to monitor those environments, monitor the access, uh, something that can see where your data is moving. So, so don't rely on, on just, you know, that, that, that cloud provider to tell you that there's a security incident. Don't, don't rely on that at all. I wasn't going to go here, but you mentioned data. So I, I'm going to, uh, allow myself the leeway to go over into, into this. Sure. Um, systems that we move from on-prem up to AWS or Azure, uh, backups are not automatic in these environments. You still need to do, you know, your, your regular good uh, hygiene when it comes to data backup. Yeah. Yeah. You cannot assume that the cloud provider is doing backup for you. You cannot assume that they've done any disaster recovery or business continuity planning for you or put any of those controls in place. Um, you should assume that you have, you know, one environment, and if that location goes down, you're down. So you need to also prepare for that. You need to make sure your data is backed up, that you have, you know, failover capabilities, disaster recovery capabilities. Uh, you know, you're putting it in multiple zones, things like that. So that is definitely something you need to take on yourself and not assume. You, you can't assume the cloud provider is doing anything for you, really. You can't assume they're securing the environment. You can't assume that they're monitoring it. You can't assume they're backing it up. I want to move over to uh, more in the, the area of ransomware here for the next couple of questions. Uh, I get asked this question a lot, and so I'm going to uh, put you on the spot here with it, I guess. Sure. People, clients will typically ask me, does paying a ransom make me a bigger target in the future? What are your thoughts on that? I think it definitely does. Um you know, I, I I recently read a statistic online. You know, so to take that with a grain of salt, mm -hmm. but it it essentially gave a, a statistic on, um, you know, it was, I want to say somewhere in that forty percent range of ransomware victims were actually, you know, a victim a second time. Mm -hmm. So just that tells me it is. But but the fact that you know you've already shown that you're willing to pay. You know how to pay. You know how to go get that that Bitcoin or, or whatever cryptocurrency. So you have that capability. It's already set up. Um, you know, I think I think it absolutely does make you a target for for further attack. Now, I would hope that you have learned your lesson and and put better controls in place. Um, you know, whatever you need to do to prevent it in the future and and have also, again, increased your your backups so that if you are hit, 
uh, you can shut it down quickly and, and you can recover from your own data rather than having to rely on, you know, the, the, the ransomware, the attacker to, to decrypt it and give it back to you. Cause, cause we all know that that's not, that's not guaranteed either. You know, there's plenty of instances where the keys don't work. The keys only work for some of your data. It gets corrupted in in the encryption or decryption decryption process. So you only get back some of your data. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a really complicated process, especially when you're talking about lots of systems with lots of data. So you can't you can't fully trust it. So it's interesting what you just said because. I wanted to ask you about uh, decryption keys because, again, I get asked it a lot. And so you you say that there is a, a good risk that the keys either won't work or they might only partially work. Talk a little bit about the process for maybe developing proof of life. Make sure, is it possible to work with the bad actors to say, hey, yeah, okay, we'll pay the ransom, but we need proof that these keys are going to work. I mean, is that a thing? And tell me how that might work. Yeah, I, I think that um, some of them will, you know, let you decrypt a portion of your data to prove to you that it, it's actually recoverable. Um, again, you can only trust that so far because that might just be a piece that they know they can recover and, and there's no guarantee that you'll be able to recover the rest. So that is, that is something that they've been doing as well. I mean, the ransomware... You know, crime syndicates have gotten very advanced in the services they offer. Um, you know, they offer call centers now and and they'll have chats with you and, and they'll negotiate. But, you know, they also at times can, can you know, go back on any of that. You, you never guarantee that any of it is going to work, you know, and, and they might come back in six months and, and attack you again. You, you, you know, you, you can't be guaranteed of... of anything with them because at the end of the day they're criminals and they're in in it to make money and if they think that they can get more money out of you then they will one of the other questions i always like to ask um, executives is what keeps you up at night and so having this you know inside behind the curtain uh chat with uh with you uh, as a CISO, what are your biggest fears Ransomware obviously is one of them. I mean, it's it's such a huge business for them. There's so many organizations doing it. Um, you know, so ransomware is definitely one of my biggest fears. We've done a lot to protect ourselves against, you know, a successful attack, as well as we have really good data backup. Um, and and we test that and we've made sure that our data backups are usable. But, you know, on, on top of that, data theft is a really big concern of mine. Mm. Um, we have a lot of valuable information as, as a life insurance company. We want to protect that. You know, it, it would be bad for both the company and our customers if that data were publicly released. So, you know, that is, that is one of my biggest fears to the point that, you know, Pat, very blunt conversations with leadership, with the CEO, with the security team, the CTO say, if security sees data leaving in the environment, they need to be empowered to make that decision to shut it down. Yeah. You know, we, we need to be able to make the decision quickly uh, without having to get a committee together and all that to, to, to stop that, that flow outbound. Um, because once it's gone, you can't put it back in, you know, um, 
and, and the reputation impact from that can be pretty drastic, especially in an organization where you rely on third parties a lot. You know, we have a number of third parties that we share data with. So we have their data. You know, they would they would turn us off uh, if we had a significant breach of their data. We have, you know, business partners who if they lose trust in us, they're going to stop selling our products, you know, and that can have a really big impact. Um, we've seen time and time again, you know, consumers get get breached. And, and at this point, so many of us have gotten so many of those notices, which, eh, all right, there's another one, you know, right. they got my social security number. They, they got that last year and the year before I'm not worried. So I feel like I feel like consumers are starting to get desensitized to it. But I think businesses where millions of dollars are on the line, they're more likely to be like, you know what, I'm, I'm cutting you off. I'm going to go find someone else. I'll, I'll take a little bit of a hit maybe in my business for a short term, but it's better than taking a long term hit with you. You know, if I have to deal with regulators and recovery and notifications, you know, that could be tens of millions of dollars that that I don't want to deal with on top of reputational impact. So, you know, it's it's that data theft piece that that really concerns me that I see is having the bigger impact on on the actual business uh, and, and our bottom line. Yeah, I like what you said about the regulators too, because for organizations that are subject to specific regulation, they're also subject to considerable fines yeah. uh, in the face of a, of a data. Fines and, and lawsuits, you know, you can also have, have private lawsuits. So that's, you know, something you want to keep in mind as well. No, that's a, that's a very good point. All right. So let's say we have um, uh, a young CISO or someone who's aspiring maybe to to try to get into that, what advice would you give? Uh, you know, like I said before, I think the technical is important, but I think the hard thing is is learning the the soft skills. Um, get yourself some business education, get yourself some business experience, look for opportunities to to get into a management position, whether I mean that's how I ended up here. Um I was technical for a long time. I never wanted to get into it. You know, I was like, oh, no, I don't want to do management. And then I just found myself through contract changes and, and seniority leading a team and then being the deputy program manager and, and things like that. And I was like, oh, I do like this, um, you know, and I kind of combined those skills with some of the soft skills I was developing um, with the risk assessment and, and taking that risk focus. And that's how I transitioned to where I am now. But I think it's I think it's the soft skills. Uh, you really need to be a good communicator. Um, you need to understand how to translate the very technical into simple terms. Um, but it's not just simple terms. It's talk about how things impact the business in business terms. The COO and CEO and board don't care about your servers. They don't care, you know, that that you have x vulnerabilities i never i never even talk to them about what vulnerabilities we have or or any metrics i don't show them numbers at all um we, we talk about the impact you know the business would lose lots of money because of the things we were just talking about through like data theft or you know a significant you know cyber attack that that took our systems down for a week and that we have to do a lot of recovery you know that's a week's worth of of lost sales on top of a week's worth of maybe not being able to support our, our current policyholders, um, you know, so, so reputational impact there as well. 
So it, it's it's learning business. It's it's understanding how businesses function, what the executive leadership team and the board care about. Um, and it's not numbers. It's not metrics. It's not vulnerabilities. Um, and and it's not a risk, you know, management platform that that scores things from one to thirty six. Um, so it's that's that's why I say, you know, focus focus on learning. And and maybe you know I mean an MBA is nice. I don't have an MBA, but but maybe some business courses just to learn a little more about that. Maybe some some communications classes, um, things like that might might help. In finance, you know, I'd say something I even would like to learn more about is just business finance. I, I want to follow up to something that you just said because um, I did a an interim role uh, as a CISO, and I had a situation where an employee of of one of my clients was intentionally trying to bypass security that had been uh, implemented uh, in an effort to download malware that would allow them to uh, use their device for crypto mining. Uh, And it was a long drawn out thing. He, He must've tried 10 or 11 different things to try to bypass security. And when it was brought up to senior management, they were actually not as appalled at this individual as I expected them to be. As a matter of fact, one member of the management team said, wow, I'll give that guy a lot of credit. He was certainly persistent, (laughs) to which I almost lost my mind. How do you deal with either boards or senior executives who just don't understand the risk associated with bad behavior like that? I mean, it's your job to explain it to them and, and to get them to understand it. Um, you know, you you want to tell them what all the negative impacts on the business are. Make sure they understand that in, in the terms that they care about, the terms with which they make decisions. Um, you know, crypto mining is an interesting one because it, it sounds innocuous. So they're just running software. But, you know, crypto miners, one, a lot of times they have malware in it. So they're doing other things you don't know about. They use lots and lots of energy. It's, it's why people, why crypto mining as, as a criminal activity has gotten so popular because it costs so much money in, in processing power. The electricity usage outweighs the coins produced. So why use my electricity when I can use someone else's? Um, it's essentially theft. So that's, you know, that's one thing that that person was doing was theft. Um, and, and it has an impact on the bottom line. Um you know, it also impacts the performance of the systems. And, you know, if it's spreading by itself, it's going to impact numerous systems. So just letting them, you know, really walking them through the different impacts that has from, from, you know, it's, it's, it's taking money out of your pocket because you now have, you know, a higher, a higher power bill. What this person is doing is, is theft. But it's really all about talking to them in their terms and and what they care about, how they make their decisions, guiding the business. You know, the board's not going to care about what one person is doing un- unless they've already sold your intellectual property and it's costing you millions in, in competitive advantage. Yeah. And that ties back to the very first question about, well, what's the role? Is it a leadership role or is it a technical role? And what you've just described is very, very important when you're speaking to senior executives or the board, again, understand what matters to them and speak in those terms. That's fantastic advice. Greg, we'll get you out of here on this. Thanks for this. Uh, How can people connect with you? 
Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. I'm, I'm there. You search my name and, and my company and, and you'll find me out there. So feel free to connect. Thanks for being here, man. I appreciate you spending some time with us and let me ask you these pointed questions. Thank you. Yeah, thanks a lot, Mark. It was a pleasure. I want to thank Greg Rogers for being my guest this week and allowing me to ask him those questions that the clients are always asking me, and we appreciate his insights. The Resilient Journey podcast is a Resilience Think Tank production. We continue our focus on cyber next week as I'm joined by Michael Perdun, and we talk about services that can be obtained by managed service providers in the cyberspace. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.